0: So the topic this evening, Gerald, came to me in correspondence with Mark Bodeau and following Mark's appearance on um Biota Live, he contacted me and asked me to kind of summarise my thoughts with regards to the problems in contemporary artificial life and what we as artificial life developers could do in terms of planning and strategizing a way forward. And this is a relatively interesting question and my thinking associated with it came back to this idea of what is the value in artificial life? I mean, we, we talk every other week about artificial life through the Biota podcast. There are obviously a number of researchers, um, you know, the world over academics who are doing things that either explicitly are artificial life or then into artificial life. We've had folks on uh, like uh, Ed Salford who works at Eli Lilly. I have another friend, uh, Duncan McRae, who I believe... He works for another pharmaceutical company, but basically mirroring what uh, Ed Salford does. Uh, They use artificial life primarily as search algorithms to troll through papers and, you know, work out how uh, researchers can spend their time more efficiently looking at chemical compounds. So there are all these kinds of uses of artificial life in industry in particular, which aren't being actively tracked. And, you know, there's almost kind of value slipping through the fingers of the academics and you know, folks who could be tailoring their artificial life or at least creating an artificial life community that was more inclusive. So I framed this discussion with Mark with the idea of, well, what is the value of artificial life and how can we start tracking the value of artificial life and then giving feedback to, uh, you know, for example, the uh, the academics who are all independently... Currently, taking and giving artificial life courses with their favorite, you know, a few papers involved, but nothing that's relatively unified. And similarly, folks such as Ed Salford, who again are are grazing artificial life papers, but don't have any kind of unified artificial life in industry, um, you know, magazine or component of the artificial life journal. And I put this back to Mark that really, you know, if I had some instigation with regards to the International Society of Artificial Life, I would move them into that kind of Mindset where they were actually, you know, gathering information and building the artificial life community on this. To and I use Java as a good example, and I mean this is a familiar example to you as well, Gerald. I mean Java wasn't just created and put out there for you know the benefit of uh, <laughs> you know developers that wanted to pick it up. It was actually actively evangelized and actively nurtured and supported, and you know there was a community that was built and nurtured around it, and I really feel that that's lacking with the contemporary artificial life community. So as I rave in my uh, usual hyperbole, Gerald, I mean, does this make any sense to you?
1: Yeah, although and I'm not sure you can really justifiably have that kind of expectation because, uh, you know, Java, for example, if you want to compare it, is, um, you know, something that a lot of stakeholders have, a, have an interest in for, for all sorts of uh, uh, survival of their own fittest uh, really reasons, you know, for the financial survival. You know, a lot of um, a lot of software is written to uh, to run on the virtual machine, and, and all sorts of companies uh, have got a whole bunch of their uh, resources on it. So it's it's a very different thing than uh, an artificial life, which is a bit of a. Um, currently at least uh, a bit of a fringe phenomenon which
0: is but, i mean when java started out it was a relatively i mean the the very early days of java without nurturing could have put it in the kind of you know ml or ada or these although ada you know has its own following but i mean it could have been one of those languages if it weren't for Sun's kind of immense not only nurturing with regards to academia but also nurturing with regards to industry
1: yeah and also their their approach to uh, openness which started from the very beginning they were involving uh, people in the, in the in the community with you know completely consciously from the beginning so uh, that has eventually had its effects it's interesting now by the way i was i was uh, at a get together last week uh f- f- explaining uh, that there was uh, involved a couple of presentations of web frameworks uh, both of them uh, running on the virtual machine the Java virtual machine. And um, there was uh, Wicket and Lyft. And uh, Wicket is a, is a Java-based framework, which has become reasonably popular. And um, uh, Lyft is one written in Scala. I don't know if you've looked at Scala, but that's a very, very interesting language. I'm really kind of tempted, since I learned Java by uh, writing the first uh, versions of uh, of uh, what is now Darwin at Home, I'm sort of tempted to... Uh, press the pause button and and rewrite the whole thing in Scala, just to learn scala anyway it's a fascinating language because uh, it uh, came into existence in the in the academic world and and continues to to grow there and hasn't really been accepted on a large scale in industry at all, but it's built to run on the java virtual machine it compiles to byte codes it represents a very different kind of programming language because it mixes object orientation with uh, with functional programming. And, What's the uh, spelling
0: on the language specifically, Gerald, for people who are interested in, in researching it's, more?
1: It's S-C-A-L-A, Scala. And uh, it's really uh, a fascinating mix of these two languages, and it was able to sort of develop itself separate, separate from industry. Um, and as a result, uh, it has uh evolved very quickly independently and and now it actually represents for a lot of people uh something that's probably the successor to java eventually but at the same time at the at this moment it's far too fringe to even consider for uh the basis of a project because uh as usual you would no idea you would have no idea where to find programmers for it for example and um you know, but but what is happening is the a lot of senior Java people are really seriously exploring it and and uh, getting their uh, their fingers dirty with it. So it's interesting. You know, these are, there have been you know countless uh, programming language invented uh, programming languages invented in the academic world and uh, they they come and go or they uh, they stay. Uh, you know. M- Having their own meaning in their own little niche, but it 's rare that something gets as large as uh, as uh, you know a java or a c plus plus or something like
0: that well, speaking of finding programmers for it i 'd like to welcome Peter Newman onto the call. Hello, peter
2: Hello, Tom. I finally got here
0: it 's wonderful to have you on for folks not familiar with mean, peter has basically been maintaining the biota site for as long as i 've been the editor, so The fact that you get these podcasts every other week is strictly down to Peter's hard work, so on a personal note, I'd like to thank you, Peter, for all that work. (laughs) You're welcome. So, aside from maintaining the biota site, would you like to give an introduction to the biota community?
2: Um, Well, I... Can't really say I've been terribly active. Um, I've always just been interested. Uh, currently, I'm working with Bruce Damer on a first prototype of the uh, Biota Deep, uh, Evo Grid Deep, sorry. So many terms, and I get them mixed up. <laughs> mean, um, they keep changing names. So
0: yeah, no I mean, I'm particular. partially responsible for that. So, I mean, in terms of your work, would you like to give an introduction to your background work with Bruce and how you've moved forward to the Evo grid now and what the Evo grid currently looks like?
2: Well, I work with Bruce uh, through DM3D Studios. Uh, we... We first started off just doing 3D visualisation stuff for NASA, and then we started working on our own engine to do 3D visualisation stuff for NASA. And um, tried to we kept doing that for a while. And then at some point we sort of said, hey, why are we doing all this visualisation stuff? What did we really get into the industry for? And we all sort of said, well, cool stuff like artificial life. And we went, okay, well, let's change directions a bit and go into this. And that's when we started on doing the EvoGrid grid. Um after a bit of discussion, it got uh, into being um, the deep and the broad. Um, so we started work on the deep. Uh, let's see. So I should talk about where the, the EvoGrid deep currently is at. Um, at the moment, we're basically feeding semi-random data into a molecular dynamics simulator and um, working on being able to change that data and see what comes out. It's basically just a big option space exploration
0: and in terms of actually exploring the space um, i'm not sure whether you heard dick gordon's early analysis about the the exploration of the space being the critical component of the evo grid in terms of locking in on kind of areas of greatest potential for the formation of life is this still part of your thinking
2: oh definitely that's definitely right up there it's um the, the basic idea of the of the exploration cuz there's so much option space that we'd be here forever if we just tried to explore it in some linear fashion is basically to um, seed it with a couple of randomly selected points do uh, basically a fitness analysis on it, apply a number of heuristics to it to generate a range of scores based on things like uh, bond formation, um, temperature changes, that sort of thing. We haven't really decided exactly what yet. The system's going to be designed to be extendable. And then... um, we will um, what's the term I'm after, and then look at the neigh na- then look at the neighbouring options by changing the options by a percent or less than a percent. Um, they create an estimate on what scores they would generate estimated based on the one that we have calculated, and then prioritise the neighbours based upon their scores, and then in that way just keep building a bigger and bigger list of neighbours that. Are prioritised so that the interesting ones with the higher scores are the ones that get simulated first.
0: And Gerald, if you listen yeah. into this, what what are your questions for Peter?
1: Oh uh, well, it's uh, it comes down to probably the main question, which is usually uh, how are you going to um, pr- how are you going to um, set up things to so that it doesn't. Appear that you're putting your own will into the into the system, which was something that William Buckley was talking about as well in uh, during the bio podcast discussion with him. Uh, you know, you, the, the the big subtle uh, trick that we're all trying to accomplish is to uh, you know see something emerge and and then be able to say, look, I didn't do it. So how are you going to be able to say I didn't do it?
2: Well. Ah, uh, that's one of the slightly interesting points. If you ask Bruce, you'll get one answer, but I have a slightly different oh, answer. Oh, if you
0: ask Bruce, you'll get 15, um, 15. answers. <laughs> yeah, ain't
2: that, that, ain't that the truth? Ah, yeah. uh, Great guy, but sure, he thinks in a big picture. Um, basically, it's just that the different... Each, I mean, the problem is that we have to build the evaluation functions... That you know we build, and that's why we're, why we're looking at build, building a number of them. That we say like, this was good because it had a lot of temperature variation, and this was good because it had a lot of um, structure. Um, and in terms that we're selecting for those attributes, it certainly could be argued that we are. Selecting to see what we want to see. Um, unfortunately, unless we just—I ex- can't personally—I can't see any way to to do that unless we explore just the entire option space and say, look, you know, hey, something arose here that we none of our functions said was likely to happen. It's it is definitely a problem, and um, Bruce talks about having it running off dumps so that we're not touching the live simulation, so that we're not changing any variables while the simulation's happening, but I don't really see that being enough.
0: Did you hear hear William R. Buckley's idea that basically you need something like Tierra with a much larger space? Ironically, um, 20 years of Tierra next year, so I've been asked to do various uh, biota live celebrations associated with that, but that's an aside. I mean, William R. Buckley's vision was that you take something like Tierra, you seed it with random information, and then you just leave it. And, you know, you kind of go on and do, you you know, your, your own whatever, leave it there simulating away, and after a year you kind of peek back in, and hopefully you'll have some dominant kind of life form within that Tierra simulation. But if you don't, you just put it back down. I mean, I think the nature of grid computing currently is you could almost... Um, I don't know. I mean, when when Peter talked about changing things by just a percentage or a small percentage or you know a fraction of percentage, this fits in with your current developments associated with Darwin at home as well, Gerald, doesn't it? In terms of just tweaking little things and seeing how things change.
1: Sure, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of tweaking in that form, sure, and um, uh, but that doesn't uh, that doesn't absolve you of the difficulty. <laughs>
0: So, if you were to give yeah. feedback as a long term artificial life simulator, Gerald, what would you give to Peter at this stage
1: well, the thing is uh, you know the 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 evo grid deep idea at the moment is um it's uh, a, a really tall order you know uh, the idea in 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 vague terms is um you know let's see if we can see something that we didn't expect to see and uh you know let's just uh stir something up and see if we see the very very origins of life and compared to my approach to simulation where I'm basically saying okay let's assume this and this and this and we'll go from here and see if we can get any further I think probably both are are legitimate approaches Uh, it's just that um, if you know the uh, the, what you're just describing just uh, set something random going and uh, see if you can detect some patterns after a while um, the problem I have with that is that it's like uh, uh, it's like computing for computing's sake, and it's a it's a big waste of literally energy. So if if you know if if, if this is happening in uh, uh, a solar powered uh, computer somewhere in the Sahara Desert then I'm okay with it because it can just sit there and compute itself silly for, for a long time and then we can go observe and see if we can find something. That's fine because it's all solar energy. But if you're going to uh, run a coal uh, energy station to uh, to drive your grid, then I'm I'm tempted to be a little more pragmatic and say, okay, let's make sure we're trying to do something. You know, in, unless uh, you know, unless the scale of things is so small that it doesn't really matter, or unless the computing becomes as inexpensive as William Buckley suggested, it will become at some point that it's completely irrelevant. But
0: how, uh, how about if it's spare processing power, like folding at home or these kind of things? Are you comfortable it, with that being utilized? You know,
1: it doesn't really help that much because uh, these, uh, you know, as well as I do, when you're when you're running an interesting program on a computer the chip gets hotter and it consumes more power and uh you know people should be turning their machines off when they're not doing anything instead of letting them do sort of uh, you know something that's not useful and on the other hand of course the if it is something like folding home or SETI at home there is some uh, some purpose to it but you you it's it's not like the energy is suddenly free. In fact, you could make a good case that an, a grid computing solution uh, is, is, uh, has the potential of being you know, orders of magnitude more efficient with respect to energy than uh, than all these uh, you know ad hoc manu- manufactured PCs with all their little overkill power supplies and whatever else. Every every PC is a bit of a you know they didn't put a lot of Tension into energy efficiency for a PC. So, you know, you have your magical network of, of zillions of, of free PCs, but it still costs a lot of energy.
0: So in terms of the vision of solar-powered artificial life, I mean, you have a beautiful view. You must get some sun in your office, Gerald. Have you thought about putting in solar paneling?
1: Um, I'm, I have definitely thought about having a machine uh, uh, doing artificial life uh, activity while being powered by its own, you know, being completely independently powered by solar energy, but I haven't uh, taken any steps on that at the moment, I, you know, someday.
0: Certainly. So, Peter, I want to cover a couple of other topics with you, but, I mean, while we're still talking about your current developments in the Evo grid, in terms of the problems that you're currently facing, do you have any questions for, for Gerald or me in terms of, you know, the kind of brain trust of artificial life development that you have on the call currently?
1: Um,
2: Well, the main issue I'm having at the moment is is that I don't know enough about quantum physics, but uh, other than that... um, Let me see, what was I thinking? Um, the, The current... Well, the current stage is simply throwing random stuff together and waiting for something to happen. The next stage is... To attack the rat, the plateauing problem, where um, you know simulations will evolve so far and then stop, and um, Bruce wants to ch- see if um, changing the simulation parameters will allow a new burst of um, evolution in the uh, creature simulation, and that's apparently the basis of his PhD, I believe. Um, the um, so, what do you guys think of that?
0: I'll let Gerald go first, and then I'll give you my ideas.
1: Um, I, what exactly? You know, could you be a little more specific?
2: Um. Well. I, the idea, the idea being that, um, and I'm pretty sure you've seen that because I know I've seen the I've seen this in my. Little play um, toys. I haven't made anything serious that anyone's ever seen, but I have thrown together little toys of, um, you know, genetic algorithms and so forth. But after a while, they'll reach a hoe, They'll reach a, they'll reach a um, an optimum fitness, and you're going and they won't seem to go any further from this point. Every change is a is a poor change, so you're um that they get selected right. against. Right. So basically, a local maxima,
1: I believe. Isn't, uh, isn't this? Uh, isn't this something that you, uh, like, you're, you're calling it the second phase? Is, isn't it? Um, I mean, I thought the idea of the Evo Grid Deep was to see the emergence of anything from nothing. It's like you know the the sort of the zero uh, the zero case, zero going oh, I, to maybe infinitesimal. And and I, and I, now I, you're I, talking about plateaus already. I, I I haven't seen the launch yet. <laughs>
2: no we haven't we haven't even gotten to the first stage, and we're already thinking about the second stage. I think it's a, one of those cases of uh, what we'd like to do versus uh, what we can get people interested in having us doing um, ideal ideally, we just like to sit back, throw a bunch of random numbers at it, and you know see life emerge from nothingness. Um, I believe Bruce is uh, selling the idea that. They can, he can find a solution to this problem, that the problem is that simulations only get so far and then stop, and that he can come up with a solution that allows them to continue
1: on further. A generalized um, solution, that sounds pretty good. I'm impressed. Mm,
0: um, yes. So if I can throw in my... You, you've raised three points I'd like to discuss. With regards to Bruce specifically, my understanding is that he is purely talking about the vision of the EVO grid currently, And the component associated with, as you say, selling the generalized solution, certainly the feedback that he's received from me and Dick Gordon and a wide variety of his other advisors, is that this takes a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of of folk involved. So, I mean, that's what I'll say to that point. With regards to your point in terms of um, limits, this is something that you find with simulations. Um, I'm not sure the nature of the simulations that you're playing with, But a number of simulations have both implicit and explicit limits that are intrinsically built into them, particularly when you're dealing with multi, um, you know, multi-particle problems and these kind of things. So I know you have access. I mean, I know this is all open source and you have access to the source code. So you've probably been through it to try and find any explicit limits. But what you may be missing. Is actually the implicit limits which relate to just how the mathematics is constructed, associating with simulating the components. So, I mean, that's feedback I'd give there. With regards to quantum mechanics, this is, I mean, my uh, one of my degrees is in physics, and the thing that strikes me about quantum mechanics in particular is that we have considerably more a priori intuition with quantum mechanics than we give ourselves credit for. We're kind of indoctrinated with regards to hard, you know, atoms. Um, you know, electrons, particle-related physics and that descriptor, I'm sure you probably have, um, you know, LED clocks which you see uh, late at night and you get this kind of fuzzy effect from LED clocks. Are you familiar with that, Peter?
2: Um, Vaguely, yeah.
0: So this is the idea of the photon uh, as as basically uh, an oscillating wave function and as a physics student, um, probably second year physics student, I asked a couple of the PhDs whether our eyes were actually receptive to pick up photons, and they agreed, and I've heard this from a wide variety of people, including uh, Australia's Dr. Carl, with regards to us actually being able to pick up photons. So if you think about the way you see a photon, this in fact is in some regard a representation of quantum mechanics in a very real way. It enables you to do young slits and all these other kind of things because you get a sense that... You know, somewhere between the particle and the wave there's this kind of jelly thing, which ultimately is what quantum mechanics is all about. So my thinking is that what you're talking about with regards to your own blocks in quantum mechanics relates to certain components in the algorithms that are in the simulations that you're using?
2: Yeah, um, we're having to do... Uh, well, the original plan is that uh, we the molecular simulation that we're using doesn't do... Um, has static bonds. You set yeah. up the bonds initially at the beginning, the atoms are all bonded, and then um, those bonds do not change over time. And that we figured that something that we would need to do is be able to change those bonds so that chemical reactions can occur. Certainly. Um, and I don't know enough about under what conditions atoms will exchange electrons, and um, whenever I try to read the documentation on it, they go, oh, when you're thinking at it at this level, it doesn't make sense. You've got to go down to the quantum mechanics level, and there it all becomes clear, and I just go, oh,
0: heck. So just think of it like jelly. I mean, that's exactly the point of the problem, that basically, rather than having static bond links, it's in fact probably oscillating bond links where the oscillations actually, you know, recreate or find the joining. And ironically... This is where Gerald comes in, because that's basically what his, uh, you know, Darwin at home creatures do. I mean, they're basically, you know, tensegrities are effectively oscillating bonds. So if you could hybridise, you know, some of Gerald's abstract kind of tensegrity classes, you may actually have what you need. I mean, what you're trying to do is just oscillate the bonds to find optimised for ideal connections. That's basically what you're looking for, isn't it? Not exactly,
2: Um, because we've got... Yeah, we've got a cloud of particles flying around, and just the idea is is that when certain particles are in certain conditions towards each other, a bond will be created. And that was <laughs> my thinking of it. Um, and it it really comes... I understand the idea that, you know, that some junk, that some connections will be better and some won't, and that you'll create the connection under the ideal conditions and so forth. I just don't know what sort of parameters there are to those conditions that are relevant or not. My initial thought was purely distance, and then... Um, I'm thinking, is relative velocity a factor and all those sorts of things?
0: Well, the issue with regards to distance is very interesting because ultimately what you're trying to do is actually get that connection no matter what length, you know, is, is right. I mean, within a certain realm, obviously, you don't want them, like, connecting, you know, across simulated rooms and these kind of things. But, I mean, my feeling is that just by allowing for a variable length distance that when these things came in certain proximity, they were either drawn or repelled, uh, and these things were variables that you put into the simulation, you'd actually get the kind of effects that you want. I mean, certainly the vision of the EVO grid that, uh, you know, Bruce, Dick, Gordon, Gerald and I have discussed in the past relates to the idea of potential as opposed to you know, actually the way things go in the physical world, although I think with this varying bond length idea, you'd probably be pretty close to what's actually occurring in the physical world as well. I mean, that's what Indeed. optimization is about. That's the whole notion of, you know, things fitting into wells and energy levels is just basically them finding the right distance to combine. I think, uh,
1: one, I think one of the one of the main difficulties, I keep coming back on this, is the notion of proximity because um, I think it's a, a very expensive calculation when you don't, when you're not allowed to uh, enjoy the advantages of real quantum mechanics, and you have to simulate it, uh, or you know, a, a real mechanics of any kind. Proximity is the big issue. Of course, the, the game of life solves this by uh, by having an implicit connectivity, so things are connected based on their actual addresses in uh, in space. So I would think uh, if, an infogrid grid would also have to have a, a vast kind of implicit connectivity just like the game of life does in there, but then maybe in a, in a different number of dimensions uh, or something Some, another point I wanted to uh, come back on here is, is this idea of plateauing and um, you know, being concerned about that I, on the one hand I would, uh, I would sort of uh, add a warning to say don't be too worried about plateaus because I haven't yet seen a horse that can run 250 kilometers an hour you know, uh, there, there are plateaus that are inherent, uh, and uh, it's not uh, it's not a cardinal sin to have a, to have a plateau of, of a whole number, a whole bunch of different kinds. You know, something that the uh, grid deep. If you have to take care of um, maintaining, you know, information about proximity. In other words, uh, for if you've got n particles, then you've got a, a good number of potential connections between them, the, the amount of information and the amount of uh, storage necessary and the amount of calculation necessary to keep uh, track of the proximity really you know, gets out of hand very quickly. So uh, again, I'd like to uh, look more at solutions resembling the game of life in a sense uh, where the connectivity is implicit.
0: You You uh, about quantized space as well, fundamentally too, aren't you, Gerald?
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, the the thing that comes to mind actually when I'm sort of uh, you know thinking about what what might be done to do some uh, simulation of this kind, is um, something that comes from Buckminster fuller. He, um, fuller had this uh, he named this thing uh, which, he, which he called the uh, isotropic vector matrix. It sounds pretty uh, pretty expensive, but um, what it actually amounts to is uh, uh, closest packing. So if you uh, if you take ten thousand uh, tennis balls and you uh, toss them into a, into a big uh, box, you'll see that they uh, they sort of self-organize into a closest packing pattern where each uh, each ball is surrounded by twelve others. And there will be anomalies in it, of course. But in general, the sections of it close packed, just like uh, stacks of oranges at the supermarket. And if you go, if you have a, a matrix that uh, consists of relationships between the centers of the oranges at the supermarket, you know, then then you've got this really lovely pattern made of tetrahedrons and octahedrons, and it fills space, of course. <laughs> And um, since you know, if you if you assume that the tenab- tennis balls or the oranges all have exactly the same diameter, then uh, of course it's uh, it's isotropic in the sense that all the um, all the distances between the the things you're talking about are identical. So it's uh, it's actually you know 12, 12 neighbors to every uh, every particle. And um, there are ways to address memory such that uh, all these uh, vast numbers of relationships among adjacent, you know, nodes are uh, implicit. So you don't have to record them. You don't have to worry about them.
0: And you'd get pretty good carbon chemistry out of that kind of mapping too, wouldn't you, Gerald?
1: Yeah, you'd get a certain uh, kinds of chemistry, I mean, not necessarily carbon specifically, uh, but, uh, you know, certain things can uh, can emerge from that, I, I believe, uh, depending on what you do. I mean, it, it's still, you know, I, I haven't been specific yet at all. If you're thinking in terms of uh, of the game of life, then uh, why don't we just consider each one of these nodes to be a bit, so it's either one or zero, and uh, and its next state will be based on the state of its neighbors, you know, something like, something like that. I'm sure that's been done, by the way. I haven't looked it up, but I'm sure it's been done. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you could go further than that. I mean, the, the thing that actually came to mind that, I would, uh, that I've, I'm interested in exploring is the idea, like, just imagine that you've got this uh, isotropic metric, vector, vector matrix where every, um, every node is connected to 12 nodes around it, and they're all at equal distance from it, just like close packing. But you allow for some um, perturbance of this matrix, so it can actually, uh, you know, no longer be crystalline rigid. But you you can actually move all the nodes around. But they also have to sort of move in 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 concert. In other words, you you make the the relationships between nodes sort of like an elastic interval, so that you know if one of them moves and it pulls all of its neighbors or pushes them uh, in that direction, they can they can diverge from the absolutely perfect length that they originally had, but not all that much. You know, the more they diverge, the more uh, force they uh, they apply against uh, the uh, the difference, and. Um, the 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 fun thing about thinking this way is that if you imagine every node to have an address in space initially the uh, the addresses would be uh you know completely uh, implicit so you know exactly where everything is based on what its name is um but if you were to diverge from that then all you would have to do is record the the difference between where you should have been and the differ- and the place you are now so you can have sort of like a, a matrix that is capable of, of uh, squeezing and, and, you know, uh, it's a bit malleable rather than being so crystalline. And uh, that that kind of idea is something that I've been playing around in my mind every once in a while when, uh, when I'm in the train or something.
0: Do you have Java classes or something like that that, that show this that you could pass on to Peter?
1: I haven't got that yet. No, I, I haven't actually written anything uh, in this regard. I'd, I'd like to uh, play around with it sometime for sure. But um, you know the nice thing about it, what I'm always thinking as well is is in terms of data compression. You know, if you, you the more you can um, express things concisely in, in as few bits as possible, the better. So if if everything has sort of a, an implicit location, and you only uh, you only have to record how it diverges from the implicit location, you automatically uh, you know find yourself saving a lot of storage space and stuff like that because you only have to talk about perturbances rather than uh, rather than you know absolute positions.
0: Does that make sense, peter?
2: Yeah, um, it's a, certainly it's an interesting idea, and um, in, interestingly, it's very similar to the one that Bruce had initially. Bruce wanted to just basically slap everything down in a flat array and have um, the 12, 12 links between them on all the cardinal directions and so forth. Um, his idea was that these would be semi that they would be the links would be static, and that um, there would be multiple particles per nexus, per vertices or pool, as he called them. Um, and I didn't, and I didn't feel that that would closely simulate real, um, real world physics enough because he does. And he's constantly repeating the idea that someday in the future, far, far future, that this simulation will allow us to produce real-world objects. Very small, swimming a little beaker of fluid. Or if you watch the video that got posted recently, take over parts of England. That was a little disturbing.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) I thought it was wonderful. That was the greatest vision I'd seen with regards to the EVO grid yet. I was actually thinking of putting it in the bio to feed.
2: I was a little disturbed because they sort of seemed to escape. It wasn't like they were just, like, let out in controlled circumstances. They escaped. And it's like, oh, dear, because, you know, that's what happens to you. If there's a hole in your algorithm somewhere, the um, evolving life will find it and exploit it to advantage. And that always happens. And now I'm like, oh, dear, should I do do this? Someone Someday someone might use my work to create dark grey goo. Um, But I'll keep getting paid and keep doing it anyway.
0: Very and much so. That's a- the nature of pure evil.
2: We'll put a disclaimer on the side that we accept no no warranty implied or um what is it in the GPL? There's no warranty.
0: That's actually going to be our topic in two weeks' time, um, based on uh, nationalism and artificial life from the uh, Wired for War book that discusses
1: uh, iRobot and iRobot's use in the military. So I think that's a topical artificial life to- topic.